Hello and welcome to the 250, your weekly slash fortnightly movie podcast looking at the IMDb's top 250 movies of all time. I'm Darren. And I'm Andrew. And today we're looking at Buster Keating's 1926-1927 film, The General, um, which is, I think, the first silent film that we've actually talked about on this podcast. It is, yeah, yeah. Um, there's, there's a good few as well. There are quite a few, and particularly Chaplin is very well represented, like yeah. obviously the Gold Rush and, and stuff like that as well. Uh, modern times and stuff um is this the only keaton i believe this is actually let's take a let's take a quick look at gander the fact machine an early an early, early uh fact machine so yes the general is actually the only uh buster keaton film that's currently in the 250 sherlock jr used to be on it but it dropped out surprisingly enough uh steamboat bill jr was never on there actually which is, is quite surprising that's the one that features the great shot of him with the house falling down yeah yeah i I, like that's what i think about when i when i when i think about buster keaton i suppose those are those great physical sort of set pieces and stuff yeah i mean stuff the bits of practical effects that that wouldn't just not get done today because of cgi because i think there are a lot of people willing to do practical effects it probably wouldn't be done today because oh, health and the safety. Chances, yeah, the chances of somebody <laughs> dying. Yeah. There's well, I mean, there's the great story about that scene because obviously they only had one take, and I mean, there's another example in the general, a very obvious example in general, where they only had one take to get it right, but yeah. where they had uh, the X marked on the floor where he would stand, and if he wasn't standing in the right place, or if he was slightly taller than they'd anticipated him being. Uh, or you know any number of variables he would have been crushed Sorry, by ice. not taller than they had anticipated him being okay measures can... like let, let's just say he's five nine yeah we i have mean no how, way how of... would we know yeah we have no <laughs> way of validating this information <laughs> let's hope he's the height <laughs> we think he is you know we you think we could we should do the double check this now nah, we don't have time yeah we gotta why, be rolling. why are we doing all this stuff without buster anyway yeah. you know i mean we've got another 20 or 30 films to film by the end of this week as well yeah. But I mean, it is well. The, it's it's remarkable actually, because when you think of the output of classic Hollywood, I mean, something like seventy percent of all silent films are lost. Wow. Yeah, there's there's no record. Many of them were trashed uh, intentionally uh, because obviously the studios wanted to make room um, in their vaults when film was a, a physical object, and obviously you needed space to store it and maintain it, and it cost money to take care of it. It was deemed like there was no idea of home media obviously back then or whatever, no idea of like a shelf life or taking them on the road or selling them to television. So well, what you'd do is you would just get rid of the the film that, and, and some, sometimes they would is it wasn't it possible to record over things like a yeah. vhs yeah yeah so like they, it's not just in the 20s either it's monty monty python uh well, like lots of the, stuff, yeah, yeah the the only the only reason that's still around is because they kind of got in there and saved it like all of spike milligan's comedy shows and on, on, on bbc all of that's gone large much. portions of say doctor who for example I mean, stuff just... stuff that inspired um or, oh. or there was like concurrent with monty python isn't as influential or as well or, known yeah to to people because it there's no record of it it's such a strange thing because like we think of monty python as this kind of Groundbreaking, important uh, piece of television, and it could easily yeah. have, have 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 just disappeared. Been lost to the anchor, yeah. you know. I mean, it because it is. I mean, there are stories about, like, say, 
the Doctor Who fans who are understandably obsessive bunches themselves, like people founding, uh, sorry, you know, funding expeditions to go off to the far corners of the world to look at like BBC satellite stations to see if somebody had mailed off a copy of a tape of, say, um, was it the uh, Tomb of the Cybermen was found in Hong Kong? They were sure. looking in Nigeria and places like that. But like, <laughs> I if, was about to say that. That's there. exactly going to roll off the tongue. But no, there are like there's this this cottage industry of people who travel the world going to old like BBC sort of locations and old sort of cinemas and old places to see if they can find these old reels again um, and these old tapes. Like it's absolutely fascinating to think of how little like of the history of, of, of film and television that we actually have. Because, I mean, we think of it now being a digital age where everything's stored in, in memory and on computers and stuff like that. And I mean, to be honest, uh, even even computers and even sort of like when, when it's stored digitally, it still needs maintenance and upkeep and keep and sort of care and love. Yeah. To, like, it, it's very easy to That's sort of... That's why you end up uh, kind of paying for um, older podcasts uh, sometimes. We'll eventually be... When we reach when we behind, reach that point behind the paywall, yeah. When we finally reach the point where we've we've discussed all two hundred and fifty movies plus the four hundred that will have come in and gone out in that time, start doing bonus episodes where we talk about movies that we've already done from <laughs> uh, from the archives. Yeah, uh, well, you, yeah. You'll notice that our our voices get deeper as we get older. But in the case of say Buster Keaton, you're lucky that a lot of the materials are another ten years, I think. We've done the maths, actually. I think it's nine and a half years at this yeah. rate before we well, finish this particular podcast project. Like, sure, everything will be in 3D by then. Yeah. But, I mean, the, the so to talk a little bit about The General, which is the film that we're discussing, it's based on the great locomotive chase, which took place in 1862. Uh, Keaton was fantastically interested in trains and locomotives. Uh, you can see a lot of the stuff that would inspire The General in his earlier film, Our Hospitality, which was about the... Um, the McKay uh, feud, the, um, what you call it, the, the shootout, the OK Corral, I think, that sort of thing. Okay. Shot in Oregon in many of the same locations, stuff like that. But, like, one of the things that's interesting about Keaton's work, I've only seen a handful of stuff. I haven't seen nearly as much as I should have. But one of the things that's interesting is that as opposed to... How much should you? All of it, I would presume, is the answer to that. If but you're I... Darren. Um, you should see everything but uh, <laughs> that has ever been made. You I've should... seen every show. But I, I do feel like, yeah, I feel like I've got like a very limited pool of knowledge here, but it's not going to stop me talking about it with some semblance of authority. I'm just hoping nobody calls me on it. But yeah, but Keaton... Oh, I'm not going to. Keaton's sort of... Keaton's style is always, to, to me, has been sort of like... I think Chaplin had sort of stronger through lines and stronger sense of characters, obviously like the Tramp and stuff like that and... and but I feel like Keaton tended to build his movies around sort of set pieces and sequences that don't necessarily stick string together narratively. Right. And I think that like watching the general, it's it's I guess that comes across. I was kind of thinking of that. Like, what what did you make of the general, Andrew? I wasn't blown away. I wasn't really wowed. I'd I'd be interested to see some of Keaton's other 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 movies because I've I've seen a few Chaplin movies and quite enjoyed them. But yeah, as I say, I, I, I wasn't wasn't blown away by this. It it was, I mean, it was very good, but I I I I'd struggle to to kind of heap praise on it or to, to see it as as a movie sort of equivalent to, to Chaplin's films, for example. Right. Yeah. Like, I mean, even for me, I mean, in terms of the, the Keaton films I have seen, like Steamboat Bill Jr. is much more enjoyable in terms of set pieces. I think that Sherlock Jr. is much more, it's a much cleverer film in terms of how it's structured. And sort of, it's it's almost like what yeah. you would term postmodern uh, before that term actually existed, which what? I think is very clever. But the general, the general just, just is. The general, 
what I what I was expecting was more set pieces and to not necessarily be blown away by the kind of um, complexities of like the themes or anything like that, but to see a lot of kind of these um, incredible Fantastic stunts, stunts yeah. and and I feel like it didn't really deliver on that to the extent maybe that I was hoping it would. I actually, I thought it was quite impressive technically. I, I think it didn't have any of the big standout moments like that scene of obvious that you talk about yeah. Keaton has the, the, the house fall down on top of him, pretty much or the front of the house yeah. fall down on top of him. But I think there are any number of like beautiful shots and compositions and like sweeping camera movements. Like the, the shots of the train in motion where the camera pans across the train and you have like, for example, you have the Union, so you have the, the Confederate you, Army fleeing. Yeah chased by the, the Union Army while there's action happening in the foreground while Keaton as the engineer is sort of chopping away at, the, at as Johnny Gray is chopping away at the wood like, I, I feel like those kind of shots are, are lovely and impressive and undoubtedly yeah. and there's a lot of very good physical stuff like Keaton's a fantastic physical comedian he's not yeah I, I, I just don't feel it was it was maybe used to the extent that it that, that it could have been no. like I think of Keaton's listening <laughs> I just kind of, you know, go back and... and, and, and reflect on, on yeah, what he's done and sort of... Try, try to... Well, I mean, the, the argument is that this is the end of Keaton's golden age because he would sign a deal with, I think, MGM very shortly after this. And interestingly enough, given what you were talking about at the start of the, the podcast, where we're talking about, like, what's great about these old films is all the stunts were done by the actors themselves in violation of all sorts of health and safety rules. Right. MGM would insist on making him use a stunt double, which it, it killed his enthusiasm and his engagement and sort of, like, led him to become sort of listless yeah. and disconnected. I, I mean, that's where he gets his name from. But Buster, Buster is, is, is not his... His, his birth his, name. His given name. Buster is the... Is I believe the the term in Hollywood for like uh, you know taking a fall like uh, like someone someone who can kind of fall down the stairs or do these kind of physical stunts. Well, I mean, well, okay, let let's talk a little bit about about Buster just in general terms because Keaton he came at a time when Hollywood wasn't exactly established. Like he he sort of grew up with Hollywood almost to the point where Keaton's biography and his account of his history are fascinating because it's that kind of gray area where like everything wasn't properly documented so he can tell stories about his life that you know are complete and utter nonsense but there's no way to validate that they're complete and utter nonsense so for example he has the story about how his entire town was swept away by a tornado um or the story about how his how, name wh why why do we say that that's that that's a fabrication or that that's an exaggeration well, be because of the story I'm, I'm about to tell you now in a moment, Andrew. Oh, okay. But I mean, I'm also thinking about the story of how he got his name Buster, right? So that when his family toured uh, as part of a vaudeville company, and it's argued that, like Keaton's argued, I think he's conceded himself, that his interest in trains comes largely from his childhood spent traveling the country with these vaudeville acts. Like Chaplin had also done it in, in the UK and, and they went over the US and stuff. But... He got the name Buster uh, because his role in the family vaudeville act was he was the child who could not be broken. He was the child who could do all these incredible stunts. He could be put in a... As a baby, he was put in a suitcase and knocked down a flight of stairs and he turned out okay. Oh, I, um, I, I used to do that in um, in uh, laundry we, baskets, actually. I used to... Uh, we had, had like, a, a house that, that's... Um, for a short while, that, that was an office in um, downstairs. So it had like three or four um, stories and I used to just go down in, in, 
get into the laundry basket and it may have just been once or twice until the laundry basket broke <laughs> the many but different pieces the important thing is that my the laundry was basket was just glad that i was okay and i was gonna say the important thing is the laundry basket broke before andrew did yeah but yeah keaton's sort of routine was he was six months old he fell down a flight of stairs and he was named buster because he couldn't be busted now in keaton's version of events that name was given to him by harry houdini of course, any any exploration of his family's history and archives revealed that the family, well, the family did become close to Houdini. They didn't become close to Houdini for several until several years after the fact. Right. Like so, so you've got this stage where where Keaton's sort of ability to tell stories about his life is sort of like it's still grey and murky, and it's sort of ambiguous enough that there's sort of room there to sort of mythologize in a way that you couldn't really at the moment. I don't know. I I from what you've said, I'd I'd be inclined to trust a certain amount of what he's saying without any conclusive evidence against it oh. and and maybe to concede that he might be telling tall tales but not to kind of accuse him of such yeah to slander him although he is dead so he has no but anyway he has no more no recourse well, let's, <laughs> let's slander him um, um at some point um I, I mean even though it's not possible let's no. try um but I do, I do like, like, I like the fact that he existed at that sort of, at that gap. Because this was like, he was making films in the 20s before, before, sa- before sound, obviously, because the jazz singer came out the following year. Well, that's year. the funny thing. They, 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 there was no sound at, at that time. So, like, people had written music and played it, but people couldn't hear it. They, sound had not been invented. No. In fact, actually, that's one of the things I quite like about the, about silent films in general, but the general in particular, which is a very nice turn of phrase there. But it's the, um... It's the sense that not only are well the films there. silent to the audience. Thank you, Andrew. Um, about time somebody recognized. <laughs> but it's it's the it's idea that go on, go on. But it's the, the idea that sort of sound exists. Sound doesn't exist for the audience, but it also doesn't seem to exist for the characters. Like there are several points in the movie where Keaton's character misses something hugely important happening on screen that would have made a lot of noise. Yeah. Uh, but he seems to miss out on like gunshots and gunfire and cannon fire and like stuff falling down and, and stuff getting thrown off the train tracks into like a into, you know, a, a gorge or a or canyon or whatever. And there's a sense almost that the character exists. It's not that the, the audience is watching a film that doesn't have sound. It's that the character almost exists in a world that doesn't have sound itself. It's not it, like it's as if he's in, <laughs> in a world without sound. But just to be clear. Sound did exist yes. in 1926. <laughs> yes. And I think in the world of the movie, the, there, there, there is like... There is, there yeah. is sound. There is yeah. sound in some cases. The characters yeah. seem to have conversations yeah. with one another. They're, they're concerned about... And he's... Um, it's uh, it's nighttime and they're, they're trying not to cause any noise. They're, they are causing noise, but they're trying not to. Yeah, and, and that's funny. But I, I do like that there is a sense that noise doesn't work exactly as it does here. No, well, is, yeah. I, I suppose, yeah. It, in, if, 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 the, it w- if the audience can't hear anything, it's up to them to to kind of uh, determine, I suppose, whether, whether, whether the character can hear something or not, or how loud that thing is. If a tree falls in a Buster Keaton movie, does it make a sound? Yeah, yeah. They're, and, and, and they're wondering, oh, I hope that wasn't too loud. Or, oh, I hope that character heard that. But anyway, so before we jump into the spoilers, is there anything else that sort of grabbed you about the film just generally or broadly? Yeah, I've, I'm, I'm worried about spoiling. <laughs> this 1926 <laughs> silent movie set during the Civil War about a historical event of which almost everybody knows the outcome. Yeah, yeah. I mean... Um... Thank goodness those pesky Union 
shirts got their uh, got their comeuppance, eh? Yeah. We'll yeah, probably talk I, about that. Like, I always wanted to know how the South won the Civil War, and now I do. Yeah, it's 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 a fantastic account. Sorry, it was, was meant to be in the in the spoiler zone. Uh, but hey, we'll we'll grapple with that when we come. So, Andrew, um, do you think this movie belongs on the two fifty? What number is it actually? Number one hundred and fifty one. One hundred and fifty one. I'm not so sure it should. I I would like to see the other Keaton movies that could potentially be in the top fifty. I wonder if there's any weird political reasons why <laughs> this may be <laughs> this on the list. This particular one moment. is in is in the two fifty. Well, it's actually funny you should mention it. The the day of Charlottesville, both this and Gone with the Wind climbed uh, a full place each on the list, which was uh, one would hope an unfortunate case of synchronicity. Rather than a bunch of neo-Nazis going home and casting their votes for the South will rise again. Were there were there lots of movies on both sides, or are are, <laughs> are, 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 are just the likes of this and Gone with the Wind? I think both sides were equally to blame when it came to producing movies. Actually, we'll probably we'll talk about this a great deal in the spoilers because this is this is one of the things that's fascinating for me about American pop culture. I look, I I'm perhaps more cognizant. I would argue that it has a place on there. I think that. Lots of other Keaton, well, okay, lots of others. I think that, yeah, Steamboat Bill Jr. and obviously Sherlock Jr. also belong on the list. And I'd argue they belong higher. So if there is only... Higher higher than not being on the list. Higher than not being on the list, but also higher than the general. Higher than, okay. Uh, Like, I mean, I think the general perhaps also deserves to be on there. It's just, it wouldn't be... Would you put the general lower and then put them higher than this or, or probably would you... i i probably yeah. would to be honest i mean like i i appreciate the general as as a piece of work and as a piece of like just technique and craft like there are a number of like really great impressive sort of composition shots i mean even mm. even the little sequence where keaton's knocking um the the planks of wood off the the train track with other planks of wood like even the, the coordination whoa, whoa, whoa. Of all that. yeah <laughs> i know <laughs> that's that's, that's, a, that's a, something really you're gonna spoiler spoiler let's exploit this um but yeah okay you're right we'll talk about that in a, in a bit more depth later he knocks so, off wood with other pieces of wood without why any do context, i have to see the movie now yeah, you feel like you've gotten everything that you need so yeah. without any context for that image and without telling you who actually won the american civil war because it seems like some people are still not sure on that point we'll segue gently into the spoiler zone spoiler zone so andrew what was the general about for you it was about a man doing his part to protect the rights of the south um from from the the, the, the federal war government. of northern northern aggression well it is actually that, let's let's talk about this because this yeah. is the kind of thing that i think needs to be talked about when you bring it this up it kind of like felt that way i, I mean i i think he he had he he had quite personal reasons uh for it which seemed to be kind of he had two loves in his life which was his his engine uh the general yeah. of the title which has a, a kind of i guess a double meaning at the end yeah. and his sweetheart his well, sweetheart yeah now his fort sumter is just being shot upon in at the beginning of the movie and they decide oh this means it's time for war. Um. So is this her, her brother? His, yeah, his sweetheart's brother. By the way, his, his his sweetheart seems to be from quite a quite a rich family, and well, may, they are maybe, in the south. 
Yeah, maybe... And her ma- name is Annabelle Lee, like, I think, which is a... Yeah, maybe maybe a train engineer at, at that time... Is, is aiming is, a little is, high. Is, is, is a very... Well, no, I, like, who knows? Maybe maybe that was a, a very kind of uh, prestigious, uh, well-paid uh, position that only kind of the the most educated, richest families could afford to, to send their children to college Maybe. to learn. Well, I mean, he does find a top hat and tails in the, uh, in the cabin of the, of the general, at the general at one point, right? Yeah. I don't, I don't know. I, 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 I feel like that I might not be the case though. Yeah. I don't but, think it is. I was thinking there was going to be like a class divide thing. And maybe, maybe that was kind of implied where it's like, well, you're already not good enough for, because, uh, you're a train engineer. Yeah. Um, and, by the way, any train engineers listening, uh, we don't feel that way. Yeah, we, we feel very... Yeah. You are the best sort of people. You are truly the backbone. Of, of modern, um, contemporary uh, economic society. But yeah, let, let's talk about this a little bit. And the soul. As well. Of our like world. world. Yeah. I like that we, we, we reach that point simultaneously. Um, we're just on the same level here. Because let's let's actually talk about this a little bit. Because there's this weird romance for the South that runs through the general, and it's kind of and obviously it, it runs through American cinema in general. What's interesting is there are very few, barring like say the set a cutoff of say the year two thousand, right? There are right. very few movies that explore the Civil War from the perspective of the Union. Um, you, when you think even of, even those um, kind of. John Wayne movies always seem to be from 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 the point of view of the Union rather than Confederacy. Really? Yeah, like I mean, when no. I think I think of the Western, like the the outlaw figure tends to be a former Confederate soldier. I'm thinking here, say the outlaw Josie Wales, for example, or even uh, when you want to do, we don't talk about like Joss Whedon's Firefly. No, but which is where like, like that's where they're the the, the the villain or the outlaw. Oh yeah, sir. Yeah, I I. I well, mean... they're not whether the villain, like the outlaw Josie Wales is the hero of his narrative. He's a man out of place, a man out of time. Like he, he's he's meant to be a man who's lost his world. There's a tragedy in the fact that he's a former Confederate soldier whose like right to own slaves has been taken from him. Ah. Like there's there is this this weird thing in American pop culture, and it, it happens like even in movies and stories that are not explicitly about the Civil War but are clearly inspired by. It. So like Joss Whedon's Firefly, for example. I've no idea. Like the last the last thing uh, two things you've said. Um, the outlaw. Uh, Josie Wales. Josie Wales and Joss Whedon's Firefly complete like i'm i'm gonna nod and 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 i'm sure this means a lot to the listeners but okay but the the point is more that there's i'm afraid i won't be able to join in the, the yeah. conversation but no i okay well the, there is the point is the point is more that there's a romance about the loss of the civil war sorry in... you you can talk about firefly by the way <laughs> go ahead <laughs> well no it's just that firefly uh, is basically set in a, obviously it's a science fiction show set in the future but it's it's set in the wake of a conflict that is very clearly meant to be the american civil war in space it's about a bunch of people who want to secede from some sort of galactic union and our heroes fought on the losing side of that civil war clearly meant to be like confederate heroes it's meant to be a space western but even in the context of science fiction, there's still a very clear affection for what's termed like the lost cause narrative. The idea of like the South as like a romantic place that was just fighting for its its freedom and its expression and was sort of like pressed down and oppressed by, you know, yeah. these, these horrible northerners. I mean, even in, in the general, for example, the decision to open the film to present the start of the Civil War with the attack on Fort Sumner, which is, is something that literally presents the Civil War as a war of northern aggression rather than presenting it as, as like an inevitable result of like the south's refusal to acknowledge 
the existence of basic human rights and refusal to concede yeah. that they probably shouldn't own slaves. And I mean, like, you get to the point where, like, when the journal was released in 1926, you, a lot of discussion, obviously, in the media and stuff like that about the Confederate statues there were, and Confederate... There were slaves in this movie, by the way. Did you? Yeah. The, the beginning of this movie when uh, the... He's he's arrived and and the train is unloading. There's black slaves kind of carrying trunks and all that sort of thing. Okay, but there there are also white white people carrying trunks as well. Like I think the black slaves have have slave uniforms on. Uh, clearly illustrating the difference. But I mean that is one of the things that no, there's there's free black people people. No, in no, the sound carrying bags, <laughs> bags no, no, because they I, want to. I'm not. I'm not at all. I'm not at all <laughs> suggesting that. It's more my point that when you get to these narratives about the South, you tend to have an like an awkwardness about dealing with slavery, like about the fact that slavery exists. Like, and I mean, even today, like the Beguiled, the Sofia Coppola film that was released this year, right, which is set in the South. She deliberately wrote it in a way that avoided slavery because she wanted to deal with a bunch of Confederate women living in the Confederacy without having to explore, like, the issue of slavery. Like, there's this weird, uncomfortable reluctance to talk about slavery as a thing that happened and a thing that, you know, was why the South fought the Civil War when it comes to portraying the Civil War in pop culture. It's always awkward when you're, like, having a Confederate kind of get-together and some slaves walk in. It's, it is awkward. Yeah, there's just no way around it. I yeah. mean, that, that that's why I like, like, whatever you can say about, like, Quentin Tarantino and the, the politics of appropriation and stuff like that. The fact that his westerns I, are explicitly rooted there, in slavery. I, there's, I, there's a UFC fighter, I think his name is Derek Lewis, took his, his truck and went down to Houston to help to, to, to help save victims of the flood there. Was was taking was taking in a family and a man holding a confederate flag and he was like i'm so sorry i'm so sorry wouldn't let go of it but it was like that was one of the things that he chose to kind of save from his, that, his from house his home, as as, yeah yeah it's like and this is the most important the, thing to me is the, this... the, Derek lewis is an african-american ufc fighter he's about like I don't know, two hundred and thirty-five pounds or something. The the and he was like, "Don't worry about it. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine." But the the shame that this that this man felt about like having having this Confederate flag, um, and is still kind of holding on to it. Yeah, and, and like, that's oh. the awkwardness of um of the relationship. Well, I mean, you've actually been to the South, haven't you? You've I've only been to Florida, which I think doesn't really count. But you've been to like Georgia and places like that. Uh, yeah, yeah, and Memphis, yeah, yeah, I've, I've been to Florida as well, but yeah, yeah, it's good, it, it does, it does feel a little different, I guess. But I mean, so is, is the Confederate flag everywhere, like, is, is it a... I didn't see any okay. that, that I can remember, like, I, I was, I was in Atlanta, where, um, you've got the, um, Martin Luther King Museum. King Museum, and I was in Memphis, where you have the Martin Luther King Museum. So, okay, so probably, so yeah. I, I guess probably the two places I went were, were at least likely to yeah. have Confederate flags. I wonder, there may have been a Confederate flag in Washington, D.C. at some point. Well, there... outside the White House, there's a whole load of uh, varied varied in terms of like the political spectrum and in terms okay. of the sanity spectrum. <laughs> 
um, protests. Ty- types of protests and demonstrations. But um, yeah, there may have been some of that. Okay. Because it is worth mentioning The General was produced in 1926, which was around the time, like, you think of the South's legacy of, the, like, preserving the Civil War and building monuments to, say, Lee, for example. And, yeah. And, and having the Confederate flag as something that happened it's... since the end of the, the Civil War. But it really tended to come about. A lot of these monuments were erected in the 20s during the sort of Jim Crow era. Right. Like as, as a way of asserting white supremacy without without asserting white supremacy. Like, they gave you an excuse for the people in the Klan to come out without wearing their masks and hold parades it's, in the middle of the day. It's difficult not to see this, this movie in that context, though. Yeah, it's uh, very which, hard. Which is, kind of, which, which is very problematic. And the fact that it's so popular now, I don't think is in spite of... <laughs> <laughs> it's Confederate-leaning. It's more likely because of it. Like, it's interesting, the whole Lee thing, because I think generally... Had said himself that there shouldn't be statues of him, um, of, of him or other Confederate generals um, or leaders after the war because it would just get in the way of, of, of reconciliation, reconciliation and, and it would fan the flames of, of kind of secessionist um, resentment. And guess where we are now? Yeah. And, and the funny thing about it as well is that so you have these people on side of the confederates in 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 america the the, the kind of well, whatever you want to call them but um <laughs> them them trying to protect um their their right to have these um generally statues even though he wouldn't have wanted them and then on the left you have people saying well like generally was 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 a uh, racist and 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 a terrible human being which is not the case either um uh... I, I like he wasn't as bad as some of the other ones and as overtly as bad as like but I, I, his treatment of slaves his comments on slaves his writing on slaves like make it clear that even by the standards of the time he wasn't like a progressive no I I, I, I don't I think it's 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 generally while while his attitudes might have been fairly either of the time or are regressive for those times i don't think that was his reason for 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 fighting on the side of the south I, no I, no I, I think his 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 reason for doing so was to to protect virginia where he was from like it's, i think it's generally accepted that that it, that it, that wasn't that it wasn't done for political um reasons, reasons more more it is a, i think a, kind the of argu- a, a deeper loyalty to his home state yeah and i think the argument is more that it's or that the argument against me is is very much that while you can divorce his fighting say politically from the idea of slavery you still can't divorce his own personal views in the context of that in the same way that you can't divorce like states rights or the economy or all these other arguments that people try to make like when you go to schools in in america and you learn that the Civil War was not fought over slavery, it was fought over the economy or about states' rights, when it was actually about the economics of slavery or the states' rights to keep slaves. I feel right. like you can't divorce from that context. And I think that's... I'm sympathetic to the argument of, of, of people when when it comes to a state's... Unique identity uh, or cultural Yeah, yeah, or and, and their, 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 their right to have kind of a, a mandate and a certain amount of autonomy within those states. The, the the issue is around um how you identify and how you legislate for um basic uh, human rights and and liberties and what you deem negotiable and what you yeah, don't deem exactly. negotiable because it's still an issue in the united states there's a lot of people who want for example roe versus wade to to 
to be uh, overturned or to be well to um they who pe- people who 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 feel that these issues aren't federal but um but are, but are state issues and i'd be sympathetic to to a state's kind of right to a, a certain level of determination but where where that starts to um Erode basic human rights. Yeah, is is is, is an where issue. Where yeah. I mean, and then this sounds pretty heavy. Like we're this is not the politics hour with Darren and Andrew, but I, I think it is important to talk about in the context of the general because, like, pop culture is in many ways like a gateway and an anchor for this, and it's kind of interesting because you hear all these allegations about Hollywood being like liberal and left leaning and progressive and stuff like that. But, like, Hollywood, more than anywhere else, has done a lot to fuel this idea of the romantic confederacy in the South and stuff. Like, I mean, if you look at, say, the Dukes of Hazards, you know, the General Lee, the car with the Confederate uh, logo painted on the, the trunk or in the on the front of the car, like, the star Ben Jones has become, like, a major spokesperson for the preservation of conservative monuments and for the preservation of, like, the South and this sort of idea of history. So you do... And, like, at conventions... Like, the KKK actually recruits at conventions... For the Dukes of Hazard and stuff like that. So it's not as if all of this exists in, in a vacuum or a void where you can completely divorce and sort of put a steel curtain up and say, like, this is politics and this is entertainment. And I think that it's sort of interesting to have that discussion. I mean, and because you have this big argument now about, like, Gone with the Wind, where people are saying you're censoring Gone, you know, Gone with the Wind, where you're not. Like, all you want to do is actually just talk about the context of it and discuss its history and maybe yeah. acknowledge it's a little bit racist while still conceding that it's a fantastically made film. Like, the general yeah. is a fantastically made film despite these aspects of it, despite these, you know, problematic, which is one of those words that has itself ironically become problematic, elements about it. I'm reluctant to 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 completely de- derail or... No! <laughs> the... Uh, the the discussion of a movie with with because it it's it's not it's not a it's it's not a very political movie it, it, not especially but it, no. but it is yeah it's there in like the background. it is and it isn't yeah, yeah. like politics are not we're, front and foremost but they're we're rooting the entire time for the south and for the for the for the confederates but it's it's true to context of rooting for our main character. Whose name is Johnny Gray. Let's be clear about this. Exactly. Um, and I mean, Keaton famously said that he couldn't make the movie about the Northerners because nobody would want to root for the Union. Wow. Yeah. So there we go. That's a little awkward. But it is. And I mean, the film gets to a place where at the climax, as myself and Andrew are watching the climax, which is fantastic, and we'll probably talk about it in a bit more depth in a moment, but where the, the Confederates attack the Union soldiers who are chasing the train back into the South, you have this sort of uh, you have this sequence where it's very cathartic, where yeah. the union the union army is basically being scattered to the wind. It's being defeated and humiliated and brushed aside, and the it's Confederates very, are standing. Very satisfying as a yeah. white person, yeah. <laughs> but it is. It's filmed in such Absolutely a way. Absolutely, it's filmed in such a way that you're meant to feel like you're very clearly meant to feel like that sort of like Mel Gibson esque, you know, sort of heart thumping patriotism. What do you say, Mel Gibson? I know, but <laughs> it's not by accident. That comparison's not accidental. But it's kind of weird that like a nation or, that lost the Civil War should basically be valorized by the nation that won the Civil War. That always seems strange to me. That like that there should be such romance for the Confederacy from the Union that effectively defeated it. I mean, California, you know, is is pretty much the most one of the most liberal states, barring maybe New York. 
Yeah, they, they like they they've they've had they've had a few Republican governors like uh, yeah. Reagan and, uh, and Schwarzenegger. Schwarzenegger. But still, it, it it's just it is something that is is striking to me and was striking watching the film as well. Particularly the way that the the, the I love the fact the union are presented almost as sort of supervillains. It's like, and when oh, yeah. we get that train, nothing in the world will stop us now. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it really does. There are several scenes where it looks like the Union characters are about to burst out in evil laughs. Twirling their moustaches. Smoking tie- their cigars. Tying a woman to the train tracks. <laughs> yeah. They stop just short of tying a, a defenseless woman to the train tracks. Wearing capes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Dick Dastardly style. Well, uh, kind of um, uh, masks over their eyes. And- to, yeah. to be fair, though, there is something that I, I quite like about the, the film and it, it's tackling. I'm, a... I'm, ex- I'm describing the, the, the Hamburglar. <laughs> <laughs> when from I think of, of a villain. Yeah, from, from the point of view of the film, there seems to be very little difference between the Hamburglar and the Union troops. But like in terms of one of the things I did like about it was the sense, and I don't know, I suspect it was intentional, but it's not, it's not really developed, is the idea that maybe the Civil War was like this battle for the general in that you have this sense of the the characters who are fighting for the train and trying to protect the train trying to preserve the train ultimately end up taking axes to it and smashing it so for example even keaton himself the engineer ends up smashing through the carriage at the back chopping the end off the train setting fire to a carriage in order to try and preserve the train and to keep it going to keep it on the rails darren you're am i reading too much uh, into this it's you've just betrayed very basic lack of of, of understanding. Of the important film. thing is not the train, it's the engine. Ah. It's that carriage at the front, you see. He that that's the thing that he values. It's none of the <laughs> paraphernalia that uh, the 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 carriages behind it are the, the um or 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 anything like that. It's 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 the engine itself. But do you think, Andrew, then that the the train itself represents the engine itself represents the engine of war, boldly pushing men <laughs> forward to their extremes, and that everything else in the country must fall behind it, in front of it. It doesn't matter, but it's disposable. It's, it can be cast into a canyon. It can be smashed with an axe. It can be burnt into flames as long as that engine is fed. It's the hard penis of the south that's trying to penetrate the soft north. Uh, soft Yankee I, North. I thought I was the one who did Freudian <laughs> metaphors on this podcast. Thank you, you very much. You are, Darren. You are. But um, no, because I, I, I do wonder if that's something maybe Keaton Sorry is trying to, to our to family listeners <laughs> to, to half-heartedly. Um, but I do wonder if that is something Keaton was kind of hinting at or suggesting. Like, do you think that there's a general condemnation of the Civil War in there, or is it all gung ho? The South will rise again. Stuff. There's something like. PG and innocuous about the the, the way it represents. Um, yeah. Um, so. But it's a silent film. It is from that yeah, era. Yeah. I mean, even before it, the code or whatever. It's not. It's not trying to provoke or um, spark a debate or yeah, spark yeah. reflection. It's, it's not just... meant to make people kind of uh, reflect too deeply on the horrors of war or anything. Um, I I think and it's meant uh, to be an enjoyable adventure. Yeah, much. it's a bit. It's a bit of. It's a bit of a romp. And it's 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 kind of uh, meant meant as a bit of harmless fun that might that <laughs> might just appeal to your grandpa. Yeah, 
<laughs> who has very strong opinions. There's something there for Grandpa. <laughs> and you, yeah, and uses phrases like the war of northern aggression. But I, yeah, I do. I mean, aside from that, though, it's it's spectacularly well put together and well constructed and stuff like that. It's a very well made film, just from a technical point of view. One of the things I particularly like about it is its structure is symmetrical. In that, so you have the. Oh, it's, yeah. it's based on the Great Locomotive Chase of 1862, which was later adapted by Walt Disney for a much more straightforward uh, movie, which was told from the perspective of the Union spies, but somehow didn't become quite as popular as this version of the tale. <laughs> I wonder why that might be. But it uh, it basically is it's it, Keaton spends the first half of the movie chasing the general up north. He then Funny rescues the general this... and then spend the rest of the movie chasing back and there's this nice symmetry throughout where you have like actions recurring so for example you know the the union spies right. pose as confederates and he has to pose then as a union officer you have for example the water tower splashing him and then it splashes the union officers you have all this sort of stuff that repeats which is quite in, nice very like structurally going to the back of the carriage with max yeah knocking the window out and then cutting the back off the carriage as well not betraying the important um kind of sentiment of protecting the engine never yeah, never 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 betraying the engine yeah but i do i like i like i feel I, there, there's there's a great moment when she annabelle is it? yeah annabelle where she's like <laughs> you're so brave to come rescue uh, re- me. rescue rescue me and it's it's kind of like oh. but you were kind of incidental here yeah. to be honest because he stumbles upon rest- her entirely by accident yeah I was trying to rescue the engine. Um, I guess you'll do. Now I'm also rescuing you, though. Yeah. Um, let's have an awkward embrace at the end of the movie. Let's have an awkward PG-13 embrace at the end of the movie. It, yeah, it's like something this. for daddy, is it? <laughs> yeah, no. 1926, the general, the embrace scene at the end. It gets really saucy. Um, no, because it is. It's really awkward. Where the two I was act- into it. Yeah, where, the, where Keaton has his hand around her but not touching her while keeping a, a sizable distance from her as well. Just in case anybody watching the audience might get the wrong idea. Quite like that, that title card that's like after a night of rest... <laughs> um, uh, yeah, uh, people didn't have sex before nineteen twenty-seven. Yeah, it's it's like when you were like um, maybe thirteen or fourteen, and the teacher says, um, "Oh, for a treat, we're going to be learning a dance in P today. So uh, <laughs> pick a female partner and um, take it from there." Yeah, yeah, just kind of like position yourself a few feet away from them. The yeah the 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 realities of 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 young kind of teenage boys' bodies. Where what are we doing? This <laughs> <laughs> is not that show, Andrew. This is every, not that show. Uh, the classes change every forty five minutes, and you have to stand up, um, <laughs> and it's what? awkward. What are you talking about? Uh, never mind. Okay. We're talking about uh, <laughs> the uh, general, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, we're talking about the the general and not about awkward erections. Uh, dur- oh, dur- okay, yeah, okay, yeah. that's that's what we're getting on here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, 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 that's what it must have been like all the time to be living during civil war times, because like, um, yeah, you're 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 not allowed to to, to express such things. Yeah, it's yeah, grossly inappropriate and so on and so forth. I mean. Like I, I really, really like. I like a lot of the film. A lot of shame. A lot of shame. Everybody feels shame. <laughs> well, I mean, the film famously features the most expensive special effects shot of the silent era. Um, yeah. Which is the the infamous shot of the the train trying to come over the burning bridge and collapsing down. Is it at Rock Ridge? I think it's called in the in the in the 
Um, yeah. In the film, it turns out to be, I think it's Roe River in Oregon. And what's interesting is that it cost 24 grand to shoot, um, which at the time was the most expensive shot. Um, nowadays, adjusted for inflation, that's about half a million. It's still actually, to be fair, seems a reasonable amount of money for that shot that you get, which is the train coming across, and then as the bridge is burning, it's snapping and the train being sort of swallowed by the river below. Yeah. Um, although they claim that they cleaned up a lot after that scene, the locals in Oregon still claim that when the tide is low, you can see parts of the engine bursting out, which is... Wow. Yeah, which is pretty cool. It's amazing. That's some good prop engineering going on there. They literally do not make them like they used to. But, I mean, the entire town apparently showed up. There were, like, something like four 4,000 extras. Oh, we, um, we must we must visit this place on our on our 250 tour when we do the world tour we'll make a point to, to stop in oregon and sort of uh take in the general um and its surroundings what do you make of keaton he's he has this great kind of um uh, innocence to him and he he is a a compelling uh lead actor and i i feel like i I kind of wanted to root for him in spite of the, um, the fact context that, yeah. of, the, of the, the movie or the Civil War. I mean, one of the things that sort of always struck me about Keaton as compared to, say, Chaplin or, or even Lloyd, arguably, is the sense that Keaton always seemed a bit, I don't want to know, I don't want to say above it all, but like there's a famous story of Keaton dismissing Chaplin's tramp as a bum and seeing it as being beneath him uh, and seeing it as being sort of patronizing and condescending. And I mean, you wonder how you end up with a, with a movie about a train engineer who falls for a landed uh, landed family in the deep south. But um, there is this how sense... How talk, by the way? He sounds a lot like Eeyore. Really? If you can imagine. He has this sort of... He sounds very depressive and very sort of... It's He sounds almost like you would expect him to sound looking at his face. Because his body... Keaton's body is very elastic and his eyes are very expressive. Very short guy. He, as, as the film repeatedly sort of yeah. demonstrates. But he, his eyes are very expressive, but his face always seems stuck in this sort of pallor, sort of downcast. Yeah. He, when he emotes, he emotes with his body and his eyes. He doesn't emote with the rest of his face. Like I there's think a, a lot of the people the, this... in, in, in the movie have that really very, very white um, makeup on, um, like, like they're meant to be kind of vampires and um, some kind of undead <laughs> sort of creature. Yeah. Um, the South, the South will rise again. But it does have, um, but he does, he always, to me, sort of struck me as a more existential. Like, it always felt like when you're dealing with Chaplin or even Lloyd, like you had stuff like, say, The Gold Rush or, or Modern Times or even, like, Safety Last, yeah. where it frequently felt like at the start of the 20th century, you had these characters wrestling against technology. So you had, like, obviously the gears and the grinds and sort of yeah. being squeezed and broken and sort of, like, pressured. And this idea of like that the American man or individual sort of worrying about automation and the rise of machines. That's not really in this. But at all, that's yeah. it exactly like Keaton for me always seemed to have a much more existential sadness to him. Like Keaton always seemed to be like, and it happens a lot in this film as well because obviously he's chasing after after a piece of machinery and he's saving a piece of machinery and he's one with a piece of machinery. He's never ground up by it. Instead, it's more the world. Technology is our only protection against nature. 
yes, that that would seem to be pretty much how how this film views it, Andrew, and and your H.R. Geiger slash Werner Herzog impression. <laughs> yeah, um, that was kind of in between, wasn't it? It was a little bit, but yeah. I do, I do like with the character played by Keaton. It always feels like it's not something mechanical. It's the entire world almost. Like it's it's the very act of existing exerts an incredible pressure on him. And the entire world around him is, it's not a Goldberg machine because that implies like mechanization, but it feels like he's oblivious. So he's like, obviously the scenes where like he pushes the, the carriage onto the sideline only to complete it missing, only completely miss it coming back onto the main line or him missing all the other actions or, or missing the sequence, you know, where various things happen or being completely oblivious or, or even for example, the great shot of when Annabelle turns him down after he tells her, that he doesn't have, uh, he didn't, he wasn't signed up for the army. And she's like, I don't want to speak to you again unless you're wearing uniform. The bit where he sits down on the train and as the train pulls off, it goes up and down, the wheels go oh, up and down incredible. and he's lifted. It's a fantastic shot, but it just sort of captures this sense of how oblivious he is to the world around him. Like, it feels like Keaton's characters exist at a fundamental disconnect from the world in which they they exist and they breathe. They don't... They don't seem to draw air in the same way that, you know, people do. They seem to just be out of time and out of, I don't know, this sort of not not in the same way as Chaplin, not in the same way as Lloyd, but existing at a remove. Yeah, I, I, I guess I can see that. He certainly has, like, an affinity for machines. Yes, um, <laughs> which, in, which marks him in contrast to Chaplin. Right? This, yeah, yeah. Where, where um, rescuing Annabelle seems to be a uh, a secondary concern. Yeah, there there is a kind of a um, I don't know if you want to say kind of like on the spectrum sort of um, uh, quality to quality. It. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about the co-director on this, the the great Clyde Brookman, who is massively underrated because he's somewhat overshadowed by um, silent actors. <laughs> Not by me, Darren. I'm, I'm one of his acolytes. Fantastic. No, so what no, is your favorite really. Clyde Brookman film? <laughs> I mean, what, the what, second what... one. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't get better after that. <laughs> no, because no, there is a tendency when you talk about the silent era to focus on the stars in front of the camera. Because obviously they were the ones they did a lot on the writing. They also did a lot on the directing, and they did their own stunts and stuff like that. So, like to a certain extent, Buster Keaton is the auteur working on a Buster Keaton film, and obviously Chaplin is the auteur working on a Chaplin film and stuff like that. But there's this this sense of like. Brookman, um, who worked with Lloyd and he worked with um, Keaton and stuff like that, he has a very sad Hollywood story because he worked on many of these silent films and then obviously when the transition came to sound, he, he worked with this, within the studio system as it became then. What happened was he got into a fight with, with Lloyd, uh, with whom he directed a number of Lloyd's films, and he'd incorporated several of the gags that they'd used together in his own later films, Brookman did. And Lloyd sued Brookman for, for basically for, for damages for hundreds of thousands of dollars, which would now amount to millions and millions and millions. Um, and the, these cases were sort of settled in Lloyd's favor. Now, Lloyd didn't get all the money that he wanted, but he got enough that the studios became wary of working with Brookman. And so Brookman, and a lot of people, a lot of people pointed out, like a lot of commentators, a lot of biographers, a lot of writers, a lot of people who worked at the time as well, pointed out that like these gags were in theory as much they belonged as much to Brookman as a co-writer and co-director as they did to Lloyd. But there was a tendency in the courts and in public opinion in the studio system to assume that those jokes belonged to Lloyd and Lloyd exclusively because he was the one who was performing them. And as a result... To, to Keaton? No, no, Keaton Keaton was Keaton was grand. Keaton was not involved in this in any oh, way, shape, sorry, or form. Sorry, sorry. Um, no, it was Lloyd. Lloyd 
who really comes across as a distinctly unpleasant individual when you talk about 1920s Hollywood. Because he, he sued Brookman. Not only did he sue him once and win, he sued him twice and three times. And basically kept going until he bankrupt Brookman and basically got him blacklisted from all his studios. To the point where Brookman Ooh. eventually committed suicide as a sort of a forgotten director who could barely work in television. That is Having been story. run out of the business by the stars that he helped to make. It's a really, really tragic and heartbreaking story. Of the studio system. I mean, like, do you want to talk a little bit about Keaton? What happened to Keaton? Yeah, please. Because <laughs> I feel like this is, this is going to be very happy and uplifting. Okay. Keaton had a similar sort of run of things in that... Oh, God. <laughs> in that after this, he signed a deal with MGM. And MGM, as we mentioned, wouldn't let him do his own stunts and stuff. He became sort of creatively stagnant. Um, and he didn't really want to do... Um, he didn't really want to do... A lot of talking roles. He didn't want to do a lot of acting in, in the sense of what the studios wanted him to do. He didn't want to do the films that they wanted, the type of comedies. They wanted to do broad comedies and stuff like that and sort of crowd-pleasing stuff as opposed to letting him do his own stuff that interested him. And he sort of lost interest and in return they lost interest in him and he sort of faded from the spotlight. However, one of the interesting things about Keaton, and this is when I talk about Lloyd coming across as not a particularly nice person, is that Keaton underwent something of a renaissance in the late 50s and into the 60s when as a result of the the rights of his films being sold to television, television at the time being seen as a hostile competing force for, for movies, uh, many of the, the actors who'd worked on films refused to sell their rights to television. Lloyd very famously refused to sell his rights to television. It's been argued that one of the reasons why Lloyd isn't as respected, I mean, you, you, you joked on an earlier podcast about Lloyd being the thinking man's Charlie Chaplin. And the reason that is, the reason he's relatively obscure when compared to the other two is because he refused to let his films be shown on television because he felt that would denigrate He would them. always stand in front of the television when it was playing. <laughs> and perform his own vaudeville act. Yeah. But what happened with Keaton was these films were aired, like so stuff like The General Our Hospitality, uh, Steamboat Bill Jr., um, Sherlock Jr., they were all aired on television in the 50s and 60s and found an audience... And sort of brought him to a new generation to the point where he, like Chaplin, he eventually he got an honorary Oscar from the Academy in recognition for the work that he'd done in the 20s that had maybe not been recognized by Hollywood at the time because it was seen as something to be looked down on, something to be dismissed, something to be sort of brushed aside. So he won an honorary Oscar in 1959 and he even, um, for example, spent his final years popping up in film and television small roles. For example, he was in a Twilight Zone episode oh. uh, where he got to, he played a janitor who discovered a time machine. And he got to actually travel back in time um, to the silent era and do like these extensive sort of vaudeville bits as part of that, as, sort of, ah. like, as an extensive tribute to him. It's a very sweet little episode and it's very, very well-meaning. And sort of nice that like Keaton, unlike, say, Brookman, Keaton got to have that, that moment at the end of his life when he was recognized, when he was finally sort of seen as the, so as, as the inspirational figure that he was. Like as this usually, this person who had sort of built this this Hollywood sort of machine, this idea of what films could be, this idea of spectacle even. Because like, I think that like when we talk about the general being on the list, and I mean, it's not neither of our favourite Keaton films. You'd still put it in, though. I would still put it in. Uh, but Just I'd... for, like... Well, just for what I'm talking about here. Confederate stuff. Yeah, just for the Confederate stuff. But just what I'm talking about here, which is the sense of spectacle and scale. Like, Keaton made the general because he wanted to make... Like, it's... 
It's marketed as a comedy. It's not really very funny. There are lots no, of nice little gags, really. but it's 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 more of an epic almost. And it, it only runs eighty minutes, so it's funny to talk about it as an epic. But it's it is like it's a civil war piece. It's a movie like of heroism and of a hero's journey. Yeah. Like it it's, feels more like yeah, a, a, a kind of <laughs> a a scale movie in a, more than more than a comedy. Yeah, it feels you know? it feels like almost as if something equivalent to the Ten Commandments. Yeah, or, or the, the, yeah. the comedy stuff is kind of incidental. Yeah, this, this is more kind of a yeah a spectacle. It's, it's more sort of the yeah it's quick inserts. It's like jokes where like Annabelle throws away a piece of wood because it's got a hole in it or stuff like that. Yeah, uh, as opposed to the central point of the film where there's a lot of like there's a lot of threat and menace in it, and I feel like. Keaton really sort of it's good that he got that recognition towards the end of his life that people sort of realized what he'd done and acknowledged it that I don't think many yeah. other people who worked in the era didn't I mean Clyde Brookman is a great example because people when you hear of the general like I mean people who are familiar with the film people who love the film will know the name Brookman will know that that Brookman wrote and directed and worked with Keaton on it but to the layman to the person who has only like a casual understanding of all film who knows only the headline details like Brookman is is overlooked and ignored, and it's 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 good that Keaton managed to retroactively get the recognition that he deserved, and it's it's sad that that Brookman didn't. Yeah, I suppose it's, it's something that we're doing going through the two fifty is watching movies that we mightn't otherwise watch. And I think you had seen this one before I hadn't. My exposure to some old older kind of black and white or um, uh, silent movies. Um, aren't great and also my exposure to I guess foreign language movies as as, as well like I'm, I'm not uh, an aficionado I feel like I've gotten more out of watching the foreign language movies than maybe wa- watching this um, uh, silent movie well I mean you say that but I mean remember Stalker everybody remembers Stalker yeah, but uh, like like I, I, I s- certainly came away from that which if not an appreciation, then a, a kind of a um, well. If if you want if you want to hear us talk about stock, I suppose you can, you can normal, actually just listen. To go the back and listen. It's still not behind the paywall. Um, yes, you can listen to gonna... it for free. Yeah, on, until until the rights expire. Like on your on your fruit based device. Oh, by the way, you can uh, watch the general. We'll include in the links. You can watch it free online because it's copyright lapsed. Which YouTube. Is you can indeed. Um, and let's actually talk very briefly about the soundtrack of this movie, actually, because this is this is something that's vaguely interesting. Because I we had we had this in our head quite a bit, like at the end. Yeah, we were sort of humming the music as we go along. Like one of the things we've talked about on the two fifty, and it's come up repeatedly, is this idea of a definitive version of a movie. And so it comes up in the context of like director's cuts, like films for like Leon or, or Blade Runner or stuff like that. And I, this idea of what, when we talk about a movie, what are we actually talking about? Because it's not necessarily a physical object. It's not necessarily a distinct cut of the film because you could be talking about different cuts of the film, different sort of takes in the movie, different sort of, you know, different things that have changed in the cut of the film, like Ma- Cinema Paradiso. Ma- imagine if this is a movie where, imagine if like at this time they made movies, they shot everything they needed there was no editor <laughs> whatsoever <laughs> like, they yeah. just rolled like it. if they just storyboarded it and it's <laughs> like so yeah it's gonna have this scene and that's gonna be followed by this uh, and we uh, need no other material yeah we know yeah. superfluous content and and then like, and the studio was so like we'll let you release there's only it exactly. one version of the movie if that ever existed <laughs> yeah i mean because this is one of the things that, that we talked about a bit because it's very hard to keep track of in, in this day and age 
And it's interesting because even when you go back to silent films, right? When I was researching this, when I was trying to figure out what version of the film you're going to watch, um, which is, is one of the super cool things. Why do we still things. trust you with that? Yeah, which is one of the super <laughs> cool things that Darren does on this podcast, is he gets to pick which of the multitude of versions of these films does Andrew get to watch? And he yeah. has never chosen wrong, thank you very much. But um, I don't know, that Leon. <laughs> the, the European cut of Leon. <laughs> very European cut. <laughs> very of Leon. European cut. But I mean, even with, say, the general, right? Because obviously the film itself, uh, the cut of the film exists fine. The soundtrack to the general is an interesting footnote because this is, again, something I didn't really know about silent films. I only discovered when I was doing research for this. And this is probably going to sound very obvious to people who know about these things for a living. But silent films, apparently, when they were released um, originally in, in the 20s and 30s, they didn't come with um, set sheet music. So when you shipped a silent film to a cinema, you didn't tell the pianist what to play. And in fact, the pianist's original job back in the very early days of cinema, around about the 10s and 20s, was just to play the music to drown out the hum of the projector for the audience. Like it wasn't necessarily to accompany the soundtrack or to provide a, you know, to provide a sense of sound to what was happening on screen. It was simply to prevent the patrons from hearing the, the, the repetitive noise of the projector whirling. That sounds as great. Yeah, I know. It's, it's really relaxing and calming. So what you would have is you would have these pianists who would improvise um, the soundtracks that they would play to these silent films. And then gradually what happened was they, they started to bend these soundtracks towards the action taking place on film. So obviously you'd want something like light and fluffy when something funny happens, something sort of tense and exciting when action was happening, all this sort of stuff. But again, this was not provided by the studio. This was not something that was standardized. It's not like you had a composer working on the film. Instead, what you would have is, and there's a great article from Carl Davis, which who wrote the music to the version that we listened to and the version that we'll include uh, in the show notes. But he, he basically, he's an archivist or an explorer or sort of an investigator, like we talked about earlier when it comes to recovering film and footage and stuff like that. But he went to these old movie houses and he discovered like giant uh, cupboards full of sheet music that was not for specific films, but was instead for specific moods. And he talked to the last living uh, organist in like New York's oldest silent theater. And she was basically saying, yeah, what would happen is you would have, you know that the film contains like a chase sequence. So you have a bunch of chase music that's written down that sounds really good with the chase. And you just pick one and you play it at that point in the film. Or you'd have something like, you'd have music that's good for like a, a big epic awe-inspiring sequence or for like a light romantic moment. And you just sort of play those over the sequences. I mean, even when Charlie Chaplin... When he went back and did the Gold Rush, he he remastered the Gold Rush in nineteen forty two, I believe. So you 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 would have certain kinds of music for kind of light horse uh, chases. Yeah. Where 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 the horses have have are having good fun. It's yeah. it's all it's all spirited and light and fun. No, no, it's the it's 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 the the the, the fur on the, on the what do you call that <laughs> the hair the mane on on the horses light versus like a dark. Yeah, uh, stallion. That is, it's, it's completely yeah. sort of different sort of mood. Yeah, you would just confuse people if if you got it wrong. But I mean, even when uh, Chaplin went back and he remastered, say, the Gold Rush, which he made, in, I think, in nineteen twenty four, he remastered in nineteen forty two. He still didn't write an entire original score for it. What he did was he picked bits of classical music that he thought worked particularly well set to particular scenes and stuff like that. That's why when it comes to silent films like this one, for example. The soundtrack that we listened to for this, and we actually we did a bit of investigating after we found it was it was written for a Channel Four airing in 1987 by Carl Davis, and it's not when? the 1987. 87, gee, gee. like it's the that same. Was, those are the early days of Channel Four. <laughs> yeah, 
Um, and I mean, it is. It was written as a sort of as a special tribute. And I mean, even today, you have cases it where... It says the original soundtrack as well. It really does. Well, it, it was the original soundtrack. It was the we first... did a few months ago. <laughs> yeah. It was the first soundtrack that the movie had had. Yeah. And I mean, even there are countless other examples of like soundtracks. And what's interesting is when you buy DVDs and Blu-rays and copies of these movies... Like, it's entirely possible that you will buy them with differing versions of the soundtrack on them, meaning that you get a different experience while watching it. Like, so two people who have bought two different versions of the general on DVD might end up watching, and I mean, it's, it's perhaps an exaggeration to say, but they might end up watching two different versions of the film. Like, it's, it's absolutely fascinating in terms of the idea of a film or a movie existing as something that isn't like a literal object, that isn't simply celluloid in <laughs> sequence. We've done that. <laughs> like we, we've watched some weird version of yes we have indeed yeah. but like it, it's just fascinating to think that like the this fam is, Lolita. yeah uh, um or even what was it we watched we watched the fan edit of lawnmower man 2 yes but, or yeah. or even just like we had debates they took out the bit where the dog <laughs> uh, rescues them all from the computer which is the best sequence in the film yeah but it is it's an interesting illustration of how like, for all that we have cinema purists, and for all that you have people who insist on, like, archiving and maintaining stuff as it always existed, like, there's a sense that cinema has always been something that evolves and something that is, like, you know, subjective or something that's subject to change and subject to being rewritten and reworked as it goes. Yeah. Like, oh, definitely. And, I mean, it's, it's just remarkable to have that in the context of, like, the earliest movie that we have talked about on this list so far. Film, it's it's made up of these kind of raw materials yeah. that that you can play with, I suppose, and mix and match and edit yeah. and and composite and remix and resample and stuff like that. I mean, it's the just director's um, uh, edition, like yeah. director's years, <laughs> director's cut comes yeah. out years later, and it's again like the, the the version of aliens yeah <laughs> we I, both watched two different we both versions. watched two different versions i watched the is it really scott no it was the, the james cameron, james cameron. Uh, did you watch the director's part like of the james team? cameron really just as a person or as a director no as a director i don't like his movies okay that may be <laughs> a slightly different that might be a tangent for this particular podcast <laughs> yeah yeah but um no, it, it's just, it, it is... Something. I think I've already established it through, like, Aliens and... Um, and Terminator, Terminator 2. 2. Yeah. But it is it is fascinating to sort of think about that in this regard. So, Andrew, is there anything else that sort of grabbed you that you want to talk about with regards to the general? Anything else that we sort of, we haven't missed, or... Well, the thing, I don't guess, I suppose, why why this is on the 250. <laughs> and, and, I, and I don't think, I don't think it's, 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 it's up to me to get it i think it's up to the movie i'm not a i'm not a complete another philistine but like i'm i'm i'll 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 meet a movie halfway and th th this was certain it was it was not bad by any stretch of the imagination i just as i say i said at the beginning i wasn't wowed and i suppose you you do believe it should be on the 250 I do. But, but nothing you've said has kind of made me think oh yeah all right. Well, it should, it should, um, absolutely. Well, if you're going to make me, if you're going to make me stand up to bat for it, just the sheer Dude. sense of spectacle of it. I think like the sweeping shots, the vistas, the stunt work, particularly the the sheer technical majesty of that shot of the the train, the Texas, I think it is, coming across the river, like traipsing down, just beautifully shot, wonderfully executed, incredible craftsmanship. And I mean, even even just 
standard generic right. shots like the shots. That's the kind of thing that doesn't really land uh, with me. Doesn't land really with resonate me with movies. No, even, even like, those sweeping shots of like the the Confederate and Union Army sort of moving behind um, the engineer Johnny as he's as he's chipping away at the wood. Yeah, like like I enjoyed that, but I I don't think the the like if 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 that's all it, it well in the context of 1926 is is I think the big deal here. Like if if a movie did that today, you'd be like, bah, that's that's grand, that's that's stock, that's expected. That's you could do that with CGI, you could do that with models. You know, I mean, even if you do it practically, well, look, you've got a studio system that's designed to allow you to do that sort of stuff these days. I think it's the fact more that. You know, in 1926, when yeah. the medium was still relatively young, like imagine how much like, like we see that top hat that he's wearing, and we're like, "What's the big deal? It's just a top hat." But that top hat cost twenty six dollars. And in 1926, <laughs> that was a that was an, an engineer's wages for a full twelve months. Yeah, it's incredible. People saw this movie and came out, and they were like, "Did you see that top hat?" That top hat was astounding. Yeah. Um. In fact, yeah. You know, that was when people started wearing top hats to inaugurations. Was after this this movie sort of set that in motion. <laughs> no, it wasn't. That is not a historically validated fact. Just in case anybody's listening and making notes. But I, I do. I was listening and making notes. Like, you're probably doing. What are it you wrong. doing? Yeah, you're probably doing. You're probably listening to the podcast wrong. But I do, I do feel like there's an element of like in terms of in 1926 doing this, right? Like, just in terms of shoot, in the same way that you but know, every every Avatar every, every, every like, year movies get all made all of the time, which are kind of like pushing the envelope of yeah, um, like 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 we we recently watched a number of. Um, <coughs> number of Hindi movies and each one of them was the kind of um envelope pusher for that particular moment. Exactly. Where where um Lagan was like the most expensive movie at the time and, and then Dangal was the most expensive movie at the time and so or the top grossing kind of yeah. yeah. But I mean I, I would argue that there's a there's an argument made in defense of that. Like I would argue for say Avatar, which is a movie I really do not like. Um, but I think See, I, I I don't waste my time with 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 Avatar. I, I'm I well yes, you are not a I'm James the, Cameron I'm, fan. I'm the only person who hasn't seen it, oh. so somebody had to watch it twice <laughs> in order to make up those numbers. Yeah, I like the idea that James Cameron was sitting up in his office, staring it's at the like, numbers, going, "There's something oh, wrong here." Yeah. Oh no, it's okay. It's okay. I can see now that everyone has watched. <laughs> yeah, but uh, even something like Avatar, which is a movie I do not like. But I think that it deserves recognition for pushing the medium forward to a technical term. It is a spectacle movie. But I mean, you can have a spectacle movie like Gandhi, for example, that that has something more than the spectacle to it. Yeah, but Gandhi doesn't have the scale of spectacle that that moves something like The General, I would argue, or Avatar. I can't believe I'm mentioning that my stock comparison is moves the medium forward. Like the general or avatar, but you know what I mean. You you get what I'm saying here in terms of yeah. like in terms of craft or technique. Now all movies are 3D. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Well, yes. Now all movies have collapsing bridges with trains on them, Andrew. It's not necessarily about logical progression, but it's about yeah. like just in terms of showing you something that had never been done on screen before and proving that it could be done. Not that not that people could keep doing it to that level of doing. You know. Yeah. The, I mean, the, there, the, there was a bike crash in, in this movie, and they never really done anything like that since. Quite like By that. the way, well, that bike that he hijacks, right? Was that 
was the ju- was this that was, anachronistic? I was about to say this is this is something that there's a, there's a bicycle in Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, and it's not anachronistic. It's like the the kind of, um, but I feel like it might have been for this movie. Yeah, and it's made of wood, <laughs> which is suggesting that like the first bikes were were, we're, just were made, made of stone. <laughs> <laughs> we're advancing. We're we're getting those chrome bikes next yeah. week. Oh no, they're bronze made of bikes, straw, yeah. and yeah. then they're made of sticks. And then there's the one stones, design and finally the wolf didn't manage to blow it down um, but um no so that that would be my argument for why it belongs there because i i do think that it represents like a big moment for the medium in terms of demonstrating those muscles and particularly in terms of existing at the that point sounds before very reverential though it, and that's fair it is reverential. i'm perhaps overly reverential i'm I'm perhaps too nice or too respectful. I'm not the I'm not the punk rocker of this podcast, you're, Andrew. You're like those people trying to protect those monuments from the Taliban. Thank goodness you said yeah. Thank goodness you said <laughs> Taliban. Um, <laughs> yeah, when, given the when, conversation that we had the, earlier, when in the, the Taliban blow up statues, just oh, it's it's oh, it's a it's terrible outrage. thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when when patriots when, uh, destroy, stand, uh, no, stand up sorry. to preserve monuments. Um, yeah, I feel like it may be best to sort of segue uh, gently away from this. So ISIS blowing up uh, colleagues. Yeah. This is exactly a comparable situation, perfectly. Um, yeah. But yeah, so with that in mind, there's nothing else that you want to say about the general. Are, are, um, are these SJWs going to... Uh, <laughs> are they going to come for the general? Uh, get this off YouTube? Yeah, they're going to try and... Th- you know, it's funny, because when I go on YouTube, I keep getting these suggestions for, like, very kind of alt-right videos. And it's like, I... Why does... Is this just popular on YouTube? Because this does not represent. I don't the see those videos, are... Andrew. I actually don't see. I mostly get movie trailers, movie which would trailers. suggest that it's well, specifically yeah. targeted. Most of the stuff I get is specifically targeted yeah, to me. Yeah. Um, Maybe you need to take a look in the mirror and ask yourself some tough questions, Andrew. I think there is a thing that you can do where you can where you can click on a video and say, "I don't want to see what? this." I think that's what I need to do. Because it's always like um, Alex Jones, Infowars, uh, like or like Morgan Freeman takes down vaccines, SJWs, oh, okay. or, yeah, some some kind of nonsense like that. I'm like, why do I keep getting these? It seems to be it seems to be some of them on Facebook as well. Anyway, you're not. Well, they're all Facebook. in a bubble, yeah. You, yeah. It, it, so basically, it's targeting. I want, I want to be back it. in my liberal bubble. <laughs> Somehow, your bubble branched. Yeah. Um, yeah. You followed it down the, it the must wrong. Must be my like uh, me watching MMA videos. <laughs> maybe, <laughs> maybe, maybe skew slightly. Maybe, maybe the audience for them also <laughs> likes to see kind of liberals, kind of uh, liberals get owned or yeah. owned. I believe is the term. Yeah, perhaps. I don't know. So with that in mind, then we'll take a look at a feature we haven't done in a long time, the In-N-Out chart. It's not what you think. It's the In-N-Out chart. Yes, it is indeed. So since we've last done this, which was quite a while ago, um, there have been some movies in, some movies out, and some movies shaking it all about. Some movies that have disappeared from the 250 include Zirkolo, which is the uh, Tarkovsky film, uh, yeah. Which is basically you were what all about this on, on on Twitter, weren't you? I was indeed. I was actually quite disappointed that we didn't get to cover it because it basically came in because it, it got over the twenty five thousand vote threshold, right? And the the basically the list very quickly course corrected, which is one of the things that's quite interesting about the list in general, is that it tends to when a movie kind of breaks in quite high, 
it immediately tends to normalize the point where I imagine there's almost a group of people on 4chan just watching the list constantly going, we need to vote this down and we need to vote it down now. Damn it. What do you mean you imagine there's, <laughs> there's a group of people watching it on 4chan? You're, you're, you're part, you're part of that group. I'm feeding <laughs> into this, <laughs> but it is. It... Do you vote on IMDb movies? Um, very rarely. Yeah. So do, 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 presumably there is a profile for Darren Mooney that with, you can with, find if with you all of your IMDb uh, reviews. Yeah, if you can find them. I don't actually have that many IMDb reviews. I mostly no. review on my own website. I think I have zero. Um, um. <laughs> I, I, you think. I like that. I may have got drunk one night and just let loose on, well, on Stalker. I think I mentioned this before in the podcast. There was a thing on Facebook where it came out where you could give movies like a, oh, a and you're rating out of five. And you were wondering if it correlated or somehow mapped yeah, across. Yeah, if this was some other thing. Yeah. Zirkelo has gone out. Um, Harry Ferry, uh, which is a, another Indian movie, has also dropped out. Um, it was on a high of about 125 at one point. And it, 125? Coming... Yep. Um, Hera Ferry, uh, which is, yeah. Hera Ferry? Yep. 116 was actually its highest rank there. Um, but it, it trailed very quickly it's down. In... Yep, I know. It's shocking, isn't it? Um, it's almost as if the list is becoming more representative of taste that exists outside the, the Western world. Um, it's a diversity hire. <laughs> See, Andrew, this is why you keep getting all right video recommendations. So with two movies out, that means two movies have come in. Um, and we've got actually a, a very old and very, uh, very you know, long, uh, this just in, that is 45 years in the making almost, which is Paper Moon, which is Peter Bogdanovich's uh, Ryan O'Neill starring sort of movie about a con man who adopts his daughter and goes on a road trip with her, basically. Um, and it came in at 207. It's actually been pretty stable for the past month. It's only at 210 at the moment. So there's a chance, actually, that this might hang around long enough for us to talk about it. Um, and another movie that's been in and out, and we've actually talked about it before on the podcast, uh, is Amir Khan's PK. Yeah. Uh, which is a film that we may actually end up covering sooner or later as well. It, it's been in and out quite a bit over the years. You can see it's, sort of, it's been skirting around the bottom of the list since oh, January 2015. Holy moly, is it in the bottom 100 with um, Dangal? It was in the top 100. It was at 84. Sorry, sorry. That's what I mean. Just to be clear on I said the bottom. I said the bottom. I'm at the top. I'm at the top. <laughs> All right. So otherwise, aside from that, um, in terms of basic movement on the list, there's been lots of, lots of small up and down gestures and stuff like that. Um, lots of the new movies that we talked about that have come in have been falling greatly. So Logan dropped 14 places, for example. La La Land has dropped seven places. Dunkirk. Cultural appropriation. <laughs> Dunkirk has dropped 17 places and Baby Driver has dropped a whopping 26 places. Interestingly enough, though, Your Name, which is, is the Japanese film, which we may be doing this just in on in the next couple of months, uh, has actually climbed since it came in. It's, it's gone up five places. Yeah. So actually, which is it's interesting. It's very rare to see a movie come in and then consistently rise for a couple of months. Yeah. It's more like they tend to come in and then they drop like a stone. There's this weird guilt of realizing, what the hell have we done? Let's get this out of here as quickly as possible. Well, maybe the distribution with your name isn't like the 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 like traditional distribution of your name is probably uh, going to contribute to it being uh, pirated quite a lot. Yeah, I would say. Yeah, that's actually like when you release a movie in one part of the world and then decide <laughs> let's wait a while. And by people, a while, we mean three years. Yeah, people will wait. <laughs> yeah, they'll wait very patiently and make yeah. sure that they procure a it's through like legal Black means. Black Mass, that, that movie. Um, Black like Mass, John, with Johnny, Johnny Depp. Depp. Yeah, 
Isn't that re- re- released in the States like a few months before here yeah. or something like that? Stupid. <laughs> so <laughs> so thick. Well, I mean, we, we live in a world where those release dates are getting shorter. Because, I mean, back in, the, back in the 90s, you would have had a couple of those three or four month delays. Oh, yeah. And, I mean, even now you have the Oscar contenders tend to have one or two month delays because they need to be released in the States. They want to be released in the States before the Oscar nomination, before the Oscar voting closes. And they want to be released in the rest of the world after the nominations have been announced. And is it the case as well that it needs to come out on, on television much sooner as well? There's a lot of, yeah, there's a lot of debate and, and back and forth about that, about the window, the release window. I've been talking to a couple of people who work in cinemas and stuff like that, and they've been talking about how the distributors are trying to squeeze them more and more, try and get the... Um... to squeeze me. <laughs> <laughs> he was smoking a these, cigar while... These, he... these distributors are trying to squeeze me, boss. Yeah. Luckily, I showed them what for. Yeah. Um, they were it wearing britches. a bit at the end where, like, where... It's... It's like the end of, of The Godfather where Mo Green and like yeah, gets all the, shot, the, all the houses of the New York Mafia. Spoiler alert. All the distributors <laughs> basically get executed as a result of trying to squeeze these cinema holders' heads. Yeah. Um, but I do... It is, yeah. It is... The market is changing. I mean, you heard about the famous story of Cannes. No. Where Cannes refused to allow Netflix... Cannes is basically... <laughs> Andrew is not entirely au fait with Netflix. But can basically said that they won't admit films from Netflix because Netflix won't agree to keep them out of uh, off French Netflix for a year after releasing in a French cinema. Um, and Netflix are like, what the hell are you smoking? There is no way that that is a viable model of film distribution. What do they smoke? Uh, mostly that, cigarettes that on very long, uh, yeah. very long cigarette holders. So, yep, so that's the in and out chart. Uh, with that in mind, then, I think the only thing left to do, then, is to pick the movie um, for the next time. Random number generator. Twist, twist, twist. Show us the movie on this list. So we've landed on... One, zero, six, which is... Scarface. Yay! Scarface. Scarface, great film. This is this is Pacino's Scarface. I don't, well, yeah, no, no, sorry. not the, not the classic nineteen thirty-two. Is this uh, Oliver Stone? Uh, Oliver Stone writing, Brian De Palma directing. Okay, and it's a remake of yes, oh, sorry, yes, Howard yeah. Hawks film of the same name. Uh, but yeah, I think it's it's the film that people think of when they think of Scarface. It's one of those things, sort of, re- it's replaced the original in the popular consciousness. So that in mind, then we will just quickly watch the uh, trailer for that. Hold on. Okay. So what do you call yourself, eh? Como se llama? Antonio Montana. And you? What you call yourself? Where'd you learn to speak the English, Tony? Uh, in a school. And my father, he was uh, from the United States. Yeah, just like you, you know. He was a Yankee. Uh, he used to take me a lot to the movies, you know. I learned. I watched the guys like uh, Humphrey Bogart, James Cagney. They, they teach me to talk. I like those guys. I always know one day I'm coming here, United States. 1980, Miami. They called it Little Havana, where the American dream had a price tag, and only one man in a million was hungry enough to pay. This country you got to make the money first. Then when you get the money, you get the power. Then when you get the power, then you get the woman. 
Scarface. For one brief moment, the world was his. I check this one. She liked me. He must be kidding. What are you talking about? That's a Cadillac. How do you know? The eyes, Chico. They never lie. Man, that's the boss's lady, okay? I am the boss. That guy's soft. I like you, Tony. There is no lying in you. Here's to the land of opportunity. We've been business together a long time. I know the street. And I'm making all of my connections. Remember I told you when you started, the guys who last in this business are the guys who fly straight. With the right woman, there's no stopping me. I could go right to the top. The word on the street, Tony, is you're not a small-time punk anymore. Supreme Court says that your privacy can be invaded. You suit the house this month? You're spending a lot of money on this counter-surveillance. We're doing 10 million, 15 million a month. Come on. Now that's serious money, you know? Your bank boys gotta come down a bit. Who else can you trust? That's why you pay us what you do. You trust us. You're in good hands with us. Al Pacino is Scarface. He loved the American dream. With a vengeance. Al Pacino, Scarface. So a, a, a trailer from the more is more um, school. Nothing exceeds like excess. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I feel I feel like, yeah, we I'll, don't really need to watch the movie next yeah. week. Yeah, although we, we should watch the movie next week because it falls very strongly into the, the, the 250 wheelhouse of lots of Al Pacino. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and lots, lots of, of subtly different Robin Loja. <laughs> um, oh yeah, um, there's going to be lots and lots of terrible acts. And there, there also appears to be some inappropriate smoking. There, uh, uh, inside we, a nightclub. Yeah, a yeah. You, 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 you don't, you don't take a, a cigar to the to the dance floor. That's, That's going to end bad badly. Etiquette, yeah, it's um, going to poke into somebody. I actually really like that trailer, aside from the entire movie in sequence element of it, because it had all like the great sequel elements, the the dodgy synthesizer music, the extended opening scene, the very serious voiceover guy explaining the plot to you as you go, which are things that you don't really see anymore, and I kind of have like a faint nostalgia for, even though I know that they're kind of awful. I, I don't know. I did, like. I think I've said before that like what I want to see in trailers is is very is is a lot of out of context, um, quick, cut. quick cut. Like you can absolutely start it with the with the way they started that. I'd maybe shorten scene, it yeah. a bit with the first scene where it's like, uh, "What's your name?" And it's like Antonio Montana. And and then and then and, and then and America. then and then you shoot like a few kind of like uh, bits and pieces and then and then have them say yeah yeah then, then. I always knew I'd come to America. yeah yeah but so you, you um, from the dodgy school of Al Pacino dodgy accents yeah th- this is um, but the trailer does over explain so my favorite one is the Mendoza bit where, <laughs> my favorite moment in the trailer is the bit where uh, is it Manny his 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 
best bud is like, you can't do that, that's the boss's girl. And then the trailer cuts quickly to the shot of Robert Loggia saying, I'm the boss. Just in case, <laughs> just in case the audience yeah. watching the trailer well, doesn't grasp the dynamics It seems of to have the whole, like I've seen this movie before and the trailer seems to take the movie in sequence. And, Not entirely and, in sequence. But think, it, but it, it are, takes it from the very beginning yeah, scene to the, the very arc, end yeah. scene. And even and, map the arc. Like, yeah, yeah. So it's like, Obviate the need to watch the movie. That, that's a word I've started using. Lately. It's a great word. <laughs> Obviate. Obviate. Um, but yeah, so with that in mind, then you can join us next week when we'll be talking about, or in the yeah, couple of weeks. When at we least watch the trailer. <laughs> at least watch the trailer before you join us to watch the to talk about the movie. Uh, in the meantime, you can find us online, uh, Andrew. We can follow you on Twitter at uh, andrewquinn.com. <laughs> Thank you, Andrew. A Q U I N N I U Q A. Boom. You can follow me at Darren underscore Mooney. You can follow the 250 at, at the 250. Um, you can also find us on iTunes, on Stitcher. Obviously, you're listening to the podcast, so you found us somewhere, but you can subscribe there and, and get weekly updates from us and all this sort of stuff. We oh, are. And if you're listening, thanks. Oh, yeah, by the way, thank you very much, actually. We're coming to the end of our first year, uh, and it's been. We're very happy with how it's gone, uh, to be absolutely honest. But we'll probably talk a bit more about that down the line. Anyway, in the meantime, take it easy, guys. See ya.